0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your Need to Know on News and Politics, seven days a week. I'm Seth Tivill. At Podmasters we talk a lot about dark money and the increasing role it plays in our politics, just as things are supposed to be becoming more transparent. But what does dark money mean? Here to discuss it is Peter Gagan, one of the journalists at the forefront of investigating and exposing dark money. Peter was for many years the investigations editor and later editor-in-chief of Open Democracy, and he's the author of the bestseller Democracy for Sale – dark money and dirty politics welcome to the bunker peter thank you very much for having me seth peter i'm curious always to ask people this what actually first interested you in this slightly strange topic
1: well, it is. It's one is. It's quite a recondite topic. It's a topic that I must confess, until a few years ago, I never knew anything about. And actually, almost the first page of my book is about this. Back in 2016, the darkest days. I'm sure some of your listeners can remember what happened on the 23rd of June 2016 with the Brexit referendum. And the run up to the referendum, I was working for the Irish Times, and I was sent. My editor sent me to Sunderland in uh, the northeast of England to, as you do, you go up and write a feature about what's happening in a city far away from an Irish reader. And while I was there, I was sitting at the train station, and I came across a copy of. The Metro, the free newspaper, and had a big wraparound advert that said "Take back control, vote Leave." And yeah, it's a couple of days before the referendum. Not that surprising, the big "Vote Leave" message. But on the back was the lion head logo of the Democratic Unionist Party, mm. the DUP. So I said, that's a bit curious what's going on here. And I used to work in Belfast and I knew that Northern Ireland had an anomaly in its election spending, which was that political donations weren't declared under legislation from uh, dating back really to the Troubles. And it was always of interest to me, but one of those loopholes that you know I'd never heard of it been used. I said, OK, that's interesting. I wonder what's happened. And I I just took a picture of it, sent a tweet, and frankly, I forgot about it then. Mm-hmm. I forgot about it for ages and ages. And about six months later, Adam Ramsey, who is at Open Democracy, rang me up saying, um, I heard your interest in the DUP and its election. election. Election spending? I said, yeah. And so he was too. He'd been in Edinburgh and he'd seen all these posters and placards say, again, vote leave paid for by the DUP. And so Adam and I started investigating this. And well, I read, quickly realised what we were investigating was dark money. We were mm. investigating what we could see to spend. We could see a manifestation of political spending. You know, big advert in a newspaper. Mm. Placards. More, We found more stuff. We found, you know, elections paraphernalia had been bought in other parts of the UK. We found a lot. But where the money had come from was completely, you know, was, we didn't know. Mm. And so we ended up publishing a story about it saying that they'd spent at least, the EP had spent at least a quarter of a million pounds. We found out subsequently it was 435,000 pounds, which is... 10 times more than the DUP had spent in the previous Northern Irish Assembly elections mm. which they'd won. A huge sum for Northern Irish politics and we found out lots about it. We found the money had been routed through a thing called the Constitutional Research Council a or, or kind of really obscure thing in Glasgow. We found out lots and bits and pieces but the remarkable thing I still think is I wrote an entire book about dark money and I still don't know where that money for the DUP came from which shows you once it gets into politics
0: how hard it can be to identify where money comes from. I mean that was a question i Mean to ask you as a follow-up, which is that we are often aware of what we can and can't say publicly and sometimes we can say nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I may have some idea but genuinely you still don't know after all these years. After all these years I still don't know. All we know is that you know what happened was the DEP came and said we're going
1: to come out, we're going to come clean, we're telling you the money came from the Constitutional Research Council which sounds really grand. It sounds Hmm. like something that would have like an office in pal Mall. Actually the Constitutional Research Council only has one person attached to it, a guy called Richard Cook who lives in a pebble dash house on the outskirts of Glasgow and is a kind of serial failed entrepreneur and failed Tory election candidate. And the money came through this thing. It's what's called an unincorporated association. It only came into being around the same time as it took this money. All it seemed to do was spend this money and then subsequently give a little bit of money to the European Research Group of DRG, then disappear back into the ether. And really, yeah, like all these years later, where that money came from, it's a story that... Constantly, I, you know, I, I, whatever I talk about, it, I always say, if you know anything about it, please come and see me. And genuinely, to this day, nothing would give me more pleasure to find out
0: where that money came from. And, and just to break this down a bit more, I mean, why would the DUP be spending this money in Scotland?
1: Well this what's so interesting about that in some ways what prompted me to look into this and spawned all these investigations I did and then the book was actually all the bigger questions beyond just this one donation because what had happened was Vote Leave the official leave campaign headed up by Dominic Cummings and Matthew Elliott they'd hit the spending limit you had a £7 million spending limit for the referendum and with about three weeks to go they'd hit the limit and I'm sure listeners would have heard of other groups that were kind of associated with a thing called Be Leave which was run by the then student Darren Grimes who's gone on to fame and fortune or whatever you want to call it, ignominy. That was actually my story. (laughs) (laughs) So this exactly, so you were looking at this and what had happened was all these different, there was a need to start funneling money into different groups and that's effectively what happened. What was fascinating about that was how it showed how the architecture that we have when it comes to elections, I'm sure we'll speak later in in the programme about the
0: election to come is not fit for purpose. Yeah, and that's, The flip side of this is we look at uh, very often the dark money that's being raised, but the alternate side is politicians are doing this because they want to spend so much money. I mean, there's a huge amount of racing to, to outspend one another.
1: Completely. And we can see this. It's You know, you've written about this really well, Seth. Like, we have this weird architecture where the spending limits, say, in constituencies for general elections are tiny. They're really tiny, small five-figure sums. And realistically, no one can win elections on that. Like, it takes, you know, I was talking to someone from the Liberal Democrats race who says it costs us about a quarter of a million pounds to win a seat. You know, and that's probably, and that's, you know, quarter of a million to half a million. Yeah. That's how we have and, to spend and the our the spending
0: resources. limit for context is sort of about... About seventeen thousand yeah. pounds.
1: So they're spending that money. You know, and they're not the only ones spending that money. But within this context where we have these bizarre out outdated kind of frames for it. And people spend money because they think it makes a difference. Mm. And you know, there's Parties wouldn't spend money if it didn't make a difference. But also, there is an arms race thing that you can see now. You know, the Labour Party have really pushed up their individual donors. The Tories are doing the same. We've had record levels of donation, actually, in the last quarter. There's an arms race going on there. And politicians wouldn't do it. It's one of the themes I kind of found myself coming back to. Boat in the book. And also, actually, subsequently, I still write about these, a lot of these subjects on my Substack, Democracy for Sale. I talk about a lot of this. And a lot of these things are still happening. And part of the reason I think is fascinating is every single party on one level thinks that they know how the system works so they can get an advantage from it. And as long as that stays, I think we're going to be in a situation where it becomes more and more of an arms
0: race. And that's a really big part of the appeal that parties make to donors in particular, isn't it?
1: Completely. It's huge. It's a huge part of, like, they're saying, look, to donors, look, we we need your money because your money is going to make a big difference. And they're also be able to say, look, the other side are getting this. Mm. And actually the headlines for the other side raising money aren't necessarily bad. You might imagine if you're the Conservative Party and you say, oh God, that guy Gary Lubner is going to give $5 million to the Labour Party well actually then you turn around and Mohammed Mansour says I'm going to give you 5 million and it's really interesting we've really seen especially in the last 6 months a serious ratcheting up where 5 million is becoming a typical you know not a typical donation sum which has has not been the case they're huge sums for the nature of British politics we really are definitely in a different level of spending than we've seen before
0: and there's a lot of evidence that having a huge lead over another party will give you a big advantage on these things. But actually, when you're deadlocked, when you're spending about the same sum of money, whether regardless of whether it's a tiny amount or a huge amount, it makes no difference. That's basically where we're
1: at, and it's fascinating. I think Labour raised 10.1 million, in the Tories 10.5 from individual donors in the last quarter. Uh, so you really are seeing that. But both parties realise it's something that they need to do, and it's it's fa- it to watch that kind of change we've seen a lot of changes in funding for political for British politics but that also means that that kind of dark money and when I use that term I, I mean it about money that gets into the political system that we can't see so sometimes it's like the DUP it's like you know using a loophole in that law sometimes it's using things like unincorporated associations which are basically kind of almost uh, in some respects they don't really have any legal standing. You know, The two of us could decide to be an unincorporated association right now and start giving money to British politics without having to declare it. Mm-hmm. Or when it comes to anonymously funded think tanks the like the Tufton Street who are influencing the political process
0: but don't declare where their money comes from. And the point about it being a loophole is really important because whilst this is entirely anonymous, it's actually completely legal. The thing that I found really
1: interesting in all the work I've been doing over the last few years and I, I find what constantly shocks people isn't illegal things, it's legal stuff. Mm. And I think as a journalist, it's been interesting for me. My background was I used to work for Channel Four, I used to do investigative journalism. Before that I was features writer, I set up the, the ferret in Scotland. But I'd never really done much work in political funding. And the funny way I think it kind of that kinda helped me because I was starting to look at these things and go, but this is crazy, guys. And the fact it's legal can make I think a lot of people who are maybe more experienced journalists, lobby journalists go yeah look that's just the way it is the way the system is but the problem when you start going is well the system is the problem then and part of your job as a journalist like almost everything in my book and almost everything I report is legal I very Mm. rarely report on illegality because there's so little that Mm. you can do that's actually illegal
0: The last few years have been an extraordinary time for this. I mean, we've had things like the Conservative Party being fined over the secret loans that were made to the Downing Street refurb, all these sorts of things. How do you think the last few years are going to be viewed when we look back on this?
1: I think we look back in the same way as we looked at the 90s. I think it depends what happens next. But we will look back at like like we did at the 90s, where... We talked of slaves, we talked of corruption. You know, the PPE deals, know I, mean, I was reporting on them back in early 2020, it was evident then, it was even evident then when I was talking to my sources who were close to the Conservative Party, that sweetheart deals would be given out to donors for humongous amounts of PPE, mm-hmm. huge amounts, and what turned out to be billions to politically connected people. And I think that actually might be almost the most lasting thing because it was such a huge amount of money. But as you say, layer on top of this were an environment in which Boris Johnson had completely given up on rules. So from the top down, you had just blatant breaches of rules, as you say, loans to Conservative Party, to Boris Johnson to, to, for the Downing Street refurbishment. Just this sense of which money was buying influence in ways we hadn't seen before. But if you look back to the 90s, what came out of that, and in fairness to John Major, he actually was part of it, mm. was, was the Nolan Review and the Nolan Principles, These ideas, these seven principles of public life the worry at the moment is that we won't have anything really to look back on from that. I'm just back from a Labour Party conference and Labour proposed this idea of, of an ethics and integrity commission and there was a panel on it hosted by some colleagues from kind of organisations, transparency organisations and NGOs. And I was really struck with, you know, how thin some of this sounds now. And some of the, even the tough talk from Labour on this has become watered down and watered down. And, you know, we, there have been asked, well, will you change the current situation where ministers have to declare less than MPs? which is crazy you know if if there's going to be an investigation into a minister for a breach of the ministerial code the Prime Minister has to sign off on including it including if the Prime Minister is the minister whose metro's breached the code <laughs> well indeed it begs the question the Caesar's wife question comes into frame but it is it's a really I think there's I think in some ways unless something positive comes out of this the stain will be even worse than we had before in terms of cash for questions and all the rest of it
0: And one of the big things that came out of the 1990s mess was PERA, the Political Parties Elections and Referendums Act, the last major shakeup we had of party funding, which came to law in 2001. Now, that was based on the idea that we only ever touch party funding if there's a cross-party consensus, which might happen once in a generation. Do you think there's going to be that kind of consensus for the next government? This is my concern with this I'm struggling
1: to see it I think there's definitely organisations you know there's quite a vocal and active kind of third sector on this now in a way that there probably wasn't five years ago. This organization, Transparency International, Spotlight and Corruption, the Institute for Government, all people like that. There's journalists like me and others who are all in this space. There's a lot more conversation around this space than there was when I started working on this, when it was, it felt really like, it was almost hard to find who to talk to, who knew about this stuff, who could comment on stories. So there's been a lot more of that. But in terms of some sort of cross-party consensus, I do find it harder and harder to see where it's coming from. Labour looked like they were going to make they were really pushing on these issues, I think, when Boris Johnson was in power and at times when they were struggling to get purchase politically. Now Labour, you know, 10, 15, at times 20 points ahead in the polls. There's lots of other things, you know, and this feels like it's an issue that I worry is going to become, uh, go down, become less and less. And, and Duncan Haynes from Transparency International, ex Lib Dem MP, made a really good point at a panel uh, at, the Labour, at the Labour Party fringe We said, he was asked a question about, there was Labour politicians on the panel as well, asked a question about will you do Something about unincorporated associations. Will you do something about the way it's possible to give money anonymously, basically to organisations like the Carlton Club, who then give money to political parties? And none of the panelists from on, from Labour would commit to it. And he said, "Look, right, if you if you're not going to do it now, in five years' time, the next election comes, there won't be another term. Mm. And this is what you this is part of the reason why there
0: won't and be. And The challenge they'll be facing will be funded by that
1: completely massively because you'll be able to say look guys, you don't like this government, you don't like the Labour government, you don't like what they're doing.' The answer to that is to give us money."
0: Labour itself, of course, had quite a lot of big donations rolling in during the Blair years in particular. That's starting to happen again. Is there a sense that Labour themselves might be compromised in years to come? I think that's, you know, you,
1: without putting words into my mouth, I, I feel like there's a concern with that. and for being at a conference, I felt that was that was where some of this is coming from. You're seeing big money return to the Labour Party. You're seeing former donors, people like Lord Levy, the Sainsbury's, are coming back into the fold. Labour's taking in large amounts of money and uh, Gary Lubner, who, who uh, set up Autoglass, is commissioned to give 5 million. They're saying there's another to be unveiled donor who's willing to give another five they are bringing big money into the tent um, and I think that's given what happened in the past and some of the same figures are there you can see you know, the Tony Blair Institute Global Council which is Peter Mandelson's lobbying operation they are very much alive and well around the Labour Party so you could see some of the same figures coming back and I think that's probably part of it and I think again it comes down to this idea that it's an arms race and we all have to take part in it that's where Labour's coming from and I would argue that that's the wrong approach but that seems to be you that. You know, that feels like it's where it's at at the moment.
0: Do you think there's much appetite for the state funding of political parties?
1: Exactly. I feel like that's a conversation, especially neither of the big two parties want to have. Because I mean, Britain gets locked in this issue when it comes to, there was a, I think, a thing called the Kelly Review about oh, 10 or 15, more, 15 years ago, which actually ended up making a lot of really sensible proposals around political funding. But one where you get to all the time is the idea of and I think a lot of the public this is an issue where I think the public are, are quite far away from the parties in terms of I think the public if they knew how this works every time they find out about it, they're aghast that people can give as much money as they want to political parties you know the idea of a funding cap etc and there's lots of policies out there you could use that would fall short of a state funded Funding for parties, but if you look at Elizabeth Warren, had quite a lot of interesting proposals for the twenty in her twenty twenty run in the US, where maybe you uh, match fund donations, say under five hundred pounds. Say someone like you or I gives two hundred pounds to the Labour Party, that gets match funded to a thousand. So you you kind of build smaller donations and broaden the donation pool. The state funding of parties feels like something that Britain doesn't, a conversation of Britain doesn't want to get to, despite the fact that we kind of do already with short money. So once you get elected into office, you do, parties get short yeah, money.
0: This is worth breaking down for listeners. I mean, the amount of Cranborne money, short money, the funding for the Scottish Parliament, the, all these things. When people say, well, we have no culture of funding political parties through the state, we've actually been doing this to the tune of millions of pounds for decades. And people, nobody's noticed Basically, that's
1: it. No one's noticed it. No one's taught to tell it. The only the people who noticed it actually cleverly were the European Research Group because <laughs> what they did, and there's a chapter about the ERG in my book. I spoke to former members for it back in the day. And what the ERG realised, and ministers um, remember it to refresh, there was a time in around 2019 where it felt like the ERG was its own political party and it was probably running the country. Yeah. They would have official ERG spokespeople on different issues. They would be wheeled out on on the news as we the ERG... We actually ERG's. Cared
0: about what Marc Francois had to say.
1: <laughs> the, all of the game... Like almost household names. But what the ERG did was basically it realised all the different parties get money for research. So they're able to hire people and the Tories have it, Labour, all the parties basically have it. All The the and has s kind of up in terms of membership size. And the ERG realised that you don't actually have to be a political party to do this. So a bunch of people got together and they're able to from pay out of their own expenses for research. And that's what the ERG was. But they were taking advantage of the reality that the state does fund a lot. And it's frustrating that it's a conversation that can't happen because I think it will go a long way to rebuilding some trust in politics and politicians because at the moment as well, you have a situation where most people were not America. In America, ordinary people do donate to politics as well as really rich people. In Britain, they don't. More people do not donate to politics. It's only, you know, it's the 0.0001% of people who do. And that gives a sense that people are doing it because they want something back from it. Mm. And I think as long as that
0: continues, it will taint the
1: impression that people have of politics, that voters have of politics.
0: No, very much so. And, and what about the influence of US politics in all of this? Because it very much seems to have been the template for a lot of these dark money organisations.
1: Yeah, it's always really interesting. Britain is always kind of fascinated by America. And I found it really interesting. I went to, and as you did too, you, you wrote very well about the National Conservative Conference that took place in London earlier. And I, I went there and I wrote a piece about it as well. And I found it really interesting because this was like the most American of of kind of like of uh, political jamborees. You know, super populist super nativist and really like kind of like tub thumping and it comes to Britain with this kind of bandwagon and very very American and it does feel like you know there's there's been a long history of us looking to America like if you go back to the Blair and Brown years there was people there was always a lot of interchange Mm -hmm. you you know Labour staffers would go to Washington and vice versa organisations like Blue State Digital would come and work in the UK and work on elections similarly people like Frank Luntz the famous Republican poster. so it's not that we don't have a history of it so there is a history of looking across. And Starmer's team seems to be doing it too. You can see aspects of it. But I think the most interesting place where this happens is the think tank world. Like America has this humongous think tank world. Organizations like the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, the Heartland Institute, just so many. It's a billion, billion, billion dollar industry think Mm. tanks in the States. And in Britain, we have a much smaller think tank orbit. And really it does, it's a Tufton Street orbit because you know, you've got policy kind of focused think tanks in the States like the, uh, the Brookings um, uh, Institution, which are kind of slightly technocratic. And that's been kind of the way for a kind of the policy think tank world in, in the UK. But you have people like the Heritage Foundation who are funded by billionaires and really push hardline political positions. And the kind of Tufton Street world that we especially heard so much about when Liz Truss got into power, organisations like the Institute of Economic Affairs, Policy Exchange, Adam Smith Institute, they do look really much Uh, very closely what happens in the states they're very very influenced by what happens in the states they're influenced both by the political positions but also the influence operation Mm. you know how do you how do you make influence how do you like kind of build networks with MPs and that's really you can see it's starting to bear fruit a lot the whole net zero scrutiny group is a very interesting example of that you know the net zero scrutiny group which has been at the forefront of the Conservative Party of pushing for rolling back of net zero proposals which frankly six months ago I thought were a bit of a busted flush these guys you know Rishi Suna Act recently, came out and rolled it on the Mac. They are very much the parliamentary wing of thing called the Global Policy Warming Policy Foundation, which receives a lot of money from the states actually as well. If you look at the Global Warming Policy Foundation's accounts, they actually talk about the mm-hmm. Net Zero Scrutiny Group as you know as as, as part of the organisation, and that's a very American way of doing politics. Very American, a way that we probably haven't seen as much of in the UK.
0: Yeah, I mean in the states, Sid Blumenthal has been writing for over thirty years about the rise of what he calls the counter-establishment, the idea that people on the sort of Republican radical right couldn't find anyone vaguely sane or respectable to advocate their views so they would set up their own talking heads which sounded and looked similar to you know talking heads on a mainstream television channel and the degree to which that's been copied wholesale and the degree to which you get bang for your buck as a donor actually in being able to fund this
1: Oh, the bang for your buck is amazing. I think, and partly, I think as well, the advent of rolling news and the mm-hmm. advent of a plethora of television channels and, and mediums in which someone can appear has been part of it. If you look, as as I do, because I'm sad at the Institute of Economic Affairs accounts, I think the last one I looked at is something like their funding is about two billion say a year. They don't mm-hmm. declare their donors. I've done a, quite a lot of investigation into their donors. Quite a lot of money comes from the States. They've had in the past money from the tobacco industry, the oil industry, etc. They, list, they cited more than 2,000 media appearances from their staff on the me- in media in the, last, in the previous year. And at 2 million, like that's, that's a really healthy return for 2 million quid, frankly. Mm. You know, if you were another NGO and you said, look, was funded on that, and you were able to show donors that level of, well, of, if, of impact, they'd be biting your hand off probably. If you had
0: a television budget of 2 million for advertising, it wouldn't get you that many minutes on television. And that many clips that go global,
1: so no, it's it's a very, I think as well that there's it's it's quite sophisticated. and They've learned very well, I think, from what's happened in the states, and and there's quite a, there's a lot of kind of back and forth as well. Fellows go from go to DC and vice versa. My sense from talking to people in the states is they don't really look at what happens in Britain, which is not unusual we're always more interested in them than they are in us and the same way that actually I think people in Ireland learn from in Britain and Britain is in Ireland it's, like, it's that like kind of being in bed with the elephant thing as, as Pierre Trudeau said but there's definitely been a lot of learning from what's worked in the States and the forming of these kind of caucuses like the free we're actually seeing exactly what's happening right now in uh, Capitol Hill in DC in terms of the Freedom Caucus and trying to be, uh, take over the speakership that's what really I think that was a big driver for some of the machinations we've seen in the last few years and on the right of British politics in particular.
0: I wonder if I might challenge one thing you said, which is that we're more interested in American politics than they are in us, because I do get the sense that they see us as a cultural leader in many ways. What's respectable, what's acceptable, what's mainstream. Uh, Steve Bannon made this point very articulately in saying that's why he was so fascinated by UK politics. It's because it was almost a testbed. And you saw that, for example, through Brexit as a testbed for a lot of the Trump campaign messages. So I wonder actually if the interest in American politics, particularly on the right in the UK is is a real presence in Richard Pulse.
1: Very possibly, actually. I hadn't thought of it like that, but I can see it because in terms of what you're trying to do in terms of messaging, in terms of history, there's quite a lot there. There's quite a lot you can tap into. And in terms of what's fascinating as well is actually the entire American think tank world basically was started by an Englishman. It was started by Anthony Fisher who founded the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, back in 1955. He eventually moved to the States and set up, He, you know, he was like a, a progeny. Every very walk, another think tank popped up. And it's really, so there's definitely a the real symbiosis there, this real connection. And yeah, there's probably,
0: actually, I can see that. There's probably, I I will take that point. It's quite an interesting one, actually. How easy is it to report on these things? Because it's a fascinating world, but you often get a sense that only a small fraction of this is, is ever exposed in public, even belatedly.
1: It's a real challenge to be honest it's a real challenge and it's a real challenge and part of the job as well is not to come off as a tinfoil hat it's yep. to be really like and I you know I, I'm always accurate I strive to, you know as always and like to have to say this, these are the facts there's not much more we can know about them beyond these facts and put them into context and say this is what we can know it's a real challenge because part is the nature of, the dar- of dark money itself that we don't know where the money comes from the phrase actually comes from Jane Meyer the New Yorker journalist fantastic who wrote a brilliant book called Dark Money absolutely brilliant and focusing a lot on people like the Koch brothers and the kind of the wholesale kind of radical right agenda that came from the kind of '60s on, from uh, particularly the oil and gas lobby, and so it's a real, it is a real challenge. I find myself constantly having to look. I'm always on the lookout for sources of information. So, for example, during the summer, I did an investigation where I looked at corporate filings in the US because almost every UK think tank has a US wing, the Friends of the IA, the Friends of Policy Exchange, etc. All the same name, mm-hmm. Friends of X, and in the US, you actually do get. Interestingly, America is very good on transparency, actually. It's really good. on Everything is noted. Mm. There's proper lobbying registers, proper, all of these registers. So I was able to at least see and discover some new donors because I could start to get some names from the American side of it. And so it's kind of ironic that you'll get more
0: names from from US filings about British organisations than you (laughs) will in Britain. Thank you, Peter. Peter Gagan's Substack, which is free, is at Peter Gagan with plenty of breaking news and exclusives. And his book, Democracy for Sale, is available from all good bookshops, and some fairly middling ones, too. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now, and Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
1: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Seth Tavo. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmaster's production.